is at least partially underwater. Um, and so I'm biking, and at one point I realize that um, my pedals are like underwater. <laughs> I haven't seen yeah. my friends in basically all year. What are you talking about? You, you're seeing one of your friends right now. Yeah. What, am I, what, what am I, chopped liver? <laughs> I don't see any of my friends in person. Proctor's like, hmm, should I really let this kid who's completely soaked into a room full of computers? Welcome to ADSP, the podcast, episode four, recorded on December 13th, 2020. My name is Connor, and today with my co-host Bryce, we're going to be talking about how many programming languages you should learn, why APL and Haskell are worth learning, and how to get your scan eyes. We have to read, we don't have to, uh, but I would like to read some feedback. I but so, so, so I sent you, I sent you a, a DM saying, you, you sent me a DM saying, um, uh, we've got to read user feedback. And I sent a DM saying, is it good feedback or bad feedback? And I almost like, I almost hope it's bad feedback because I think that's going to be a lot more funny. But uh, yeah, <laughs> let's read the user feedback. I, I, I'm not sure if I've read all of the feedback uh, that we've received. I think I have, but I haven't come across any that's, that's uh, negative. Um, but sure, we'll highlight, well, I'm not, come on, not, internet, up your game. We're up not game, asking internet. for negative, I'm not personally asking for negative feedback, but Bryce, uh, Bryce would, would appreciate some, <laughs> but anyways, uh, Pablo from LinkedIn messaged us saying, started listening to your podcast and I thoroughly enjoy it. Listening to you and Bryce talk so passionately revitalized my tough love for algorithms with a smiley face emoji. Can't wait for more episodes. So I'm not sure what tough love means. Um, but we appreciate the feedback. Not sure if you have any thoughts on that that you'd like to share, Bryce. Tough love. Well, I, I think I think he may have been referring to the fact that you know we're very passionate about algorithms, but we also you know pointed out some of the some of the holes and problems with some of the you know names and designs of some of the algorithms in C plus plus. Mm, so maybe he's sharing the same the same uh, yeah. appreciation for the the problems. And we've got two more pieces. We will we'll limit ourselves to one piece per episode, but we're at episode uh, number four here, so we're, we're catching up. Um, Ahmad, and I apologize if I mispronounce any of these names, Ahmad said, can't wait for episode three. Episode two was quite interesting. First time I heard about the unique pointer array specialization. Pretty cool, amazing podcast. So it's kudos to you for pointing that out, educating the masses. And then the last one that I was going to read which clearly I have um, moved away from. Awkward pause. <laughs> <laughs> I had it all lined up, and now now it's uh, now it's gone. So I'll find it next time, but maybe I'll cut this part out too. <laughs> Anyways, I, when when we when we started this podcast, Connor was like, "We're not going to do any editing; it'll be nice and lightweight." And uh, every episode except for episode one, we've been like, "Oh, we're going to have to make all these edits." Although I think only only episode what was last week three only three, episode yeah. three um, actually required some edits because there's been our... there's been pretty lightweight. The last episode was was Ranting. quite heavy, but uh, yeah. they've been pretty lightweight. It's mostly the first section that needs to be edited. 
Anyways, yeah. today today we're we're debating. Let me adjust my chair. Get in <laughs> get in debate mode. Lock lock the back so that I'm not uh, slouching. What are we debating? Well, we are debating uh, how many programming languages should you learn? How many, or whether you should learn more than one? Right. I think it was that. Yes, whether you should learn more than one programming language. And I will be taking uh, the position of that you should learn more than one, at least, uh, at least a little bit. And well, you... I, I think I think it's really really what the debate is is um, should you learn a lot of programming languages or should you um, just focus on a couple programming languages? Um, and I think I'm I'm going to be team fewer programming languages um and you're going to be team more programming languages yes i will be arguing one of uh my favorite tweets of all time from ben dean where he tweeted it'll be in the it'll be in the show notes but he says learn computational paradigms and then lists off c plus plus lisp haskell Smalltalk, prolog fourth apl and it's this is actually from a blog post that he wrote and later in the blog post, he also also mentions Erlang. Uh, but I think those eight, uh, feel free to leave comments on, you know, uh, either the Reddit where we post this or uh, on Twitter or somewhere or LinkedIn. Um, if there you think that there's another language that represents a paradigm outside of those eight. Um, but I completely, I completely agree. His, he ends his tweet saying, if you know these, just about everything else is variations. Um, and I completely agree that uh, learning one language from each of those paradigms is, it's a paradigm shift. It's going to completely change the way that you think about problems and that you solve problems. So what do you say to that, Bryce? Nothing. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, I should say I don't necessarily, like, as... as I've already as won. He agrees. De- <laughs> as a programming language designer, um, it would be... Um, it would kind of be hard for me to say that you should only ever look at, you know, a small number of languages. Because when you're designing a programming language, of course you want to look at other programming languages to draw inspiration. You, you want to look at what, you know, what's the, the, the existing best practice? What's the prior art? Um, uh, but that's sort of with my hat on as somebody that's involved in programming language evolution. Um, as somebody that's a you know, just working on building, you know, software libraries um, or um, software frameworks. Um, in that role, I, I'm not, I don't feel very motivated to go and learn a whole bunch of other languages, um, except when I, when I really need to. Um, like the languages that I work in right now are the, we talked about in, in a past episode, how my, my mentor thought there were three acceptable programming languages, C++, JavaScript, and Python. Um, so I kind of know all those languages. I like to joke I write really bad Python. Um, I also write a lot of Bash. Bash is actually a language that I kind of love. Um, and I'm sure we'll talk about that at, at length at some point. Uh, and then more recently, I've been spending a lot more time with Fortran because uh, uh, Fortran is a very important language to HPC, and I work on an HPC compiler hear it in video. Um, but I've just never felt the motivation to go and learn every 
you know, cool new language or, you know, languages that I'm not going to be using in my day-to-day work. And I just, part, part of it's just a matter of time management. You know, I, um, I've got so much stuff I want to do and I don't necessarily have the spare time to go and learn a language that I'm not, like, that I don't actively have a reason to use. Like, I've recently been going and relearning Fortran, um, not because I'm particularly excited about, um, like, n- not because I personally have a need to learn Fortran, but because I need to use it um, in my work. Um, and, like, it, I think Fortran's actually a pretty cool and exciting language, and modern Fortran uh, in particular, um, uh, it's, if you look at modern Fortran versus, like, older Fortran, like, it's... It's a whole different language, um, but it's just like I learned it because I needed to, to use it for my job, not because I had some desire to explore it. Um, and I feel like there's there's so many things to learn within, you know, each different language. I'd rather specialize in a few languages, you know, like there's so much to learn in C++. I'd rather focus my efforts on really mastering C++ um, instead of going off and learning, you know, Go, Erlang, APL, etc. So I think part of it is just like, how do you find the time? Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I feel like, honestly, this is a bad debate because, like, we very quickly have taken our extreme positions and, like, centered on an ag- <laughs> something, like, we agree on. Uh, so I'm sure people think that I know languages very well, but the truth is, is like at one point I heard some people referring uh, to me at a conference as like, oh, he's the Haskell guy. Um, and I was like, what? Because uh, I, I guess in a couple of my talks, I had just, I brought up Haskell quite a bit. But like, I, I am not a Haskell expert by any means. In fact, like I got six chapters into real world Haskell um, and then got distracted. And like, that's the extent of my Haskell knowledge. Um, and I've spent a lot of time like studying the prelude and like all the different algorithms and uh, a couple of the most popular libraries, uh, but that does not make someone a Haskell expert. Um, and same thing with basically all the other languages that I learn uh, um, or that I, I know so I have some knowledge of. Like I would say I have a very surface level understanding of many of the languages that I can write like a um, simple solution to some programming problem in. Uh, so your comment, you know, mastering one language and just sort of knowing a few um, that you can like write scripts in um, is actually probably what I, I would advocate for. Um, but I would say, you know, follow the advice of the pragmatic programmer, which says, you know, attempt to learn a language every year, or every couple years, uh, so that you do get exposed to sort of different paradigms. Um, and I, I wouldn't say it's definitely not worth it to become like an expert in a language from every single one of those paradigms. Uh, it's, it's worth it to become an expert in maybe one or two or three and then just sort of have like, no, have a surface level understanding of like in broad strokes, like, you know, how does this language deal with polymorphism? Like, how does this language, what do they do for their type system? You know, um, do they have like a DSL for insert this or insert that? Um, Well, but so so like for, I, I think it also might be that you and I are like slightly different types of programmers. And and that might um, that might also drive our different levels of interest in other languages. Like you're really very much an algorithms guy. You get very 
you're very passionate about going out and solving algorithmic problems. And like, that's something that you can go and do in, you know, whatever language. Um, like I've, I've noticed you've done some of the advent of codes uh, and I, okay, you should first, you should tell me what advent of code is. I've seen that you've done some of them on Twitter and in APL. I have no idea what it is. Um, so very quickly, and this is, uh, Anyone that wants to can hop in and start solving them. I was talking to Michael Park um, at the Bay Area C++ virtual user group meeting on Wednesday, this past Wednesday, um, and was chatting with him and then somehow looped him into uh, uh, starting Advent of Code. He did his first solution uh, in awk, I believe. Um, which we should probably do an episode on at some point. <laughs> but he's been, like, changing languages every day. I think the last one he did was in Rust. Anyways, Advent of Code, it's a little uh, programming problem contest, sort of. If you're, like, in the top 100, it's a contest. If you're not, then it's just something fun to do, which I, I am not in the top 100. It's just something fun. Where every uh, day for 25 days from December 1st till uh, Christmas... Um, they release a problem at midnight, midnight uh, Eastern Standard Time. And the problem comes in two parts. And I think the idea is that progressively it gets uh, harder from day one till day 25. Um, and a lot of people use it as sort of like, uh, uh, a t- they take it as an opportunity to get more familiar or to learn a new language. So they choose a language that um, they don't program in day to day. Not everyone, like I know uh, Tristan Brindles, He's solving them in C++. Uh, Barry Revzin, I've seen, has been solving them in Rust. Um, I've been solving them in a combination of Smalltalk or APL, depending on uh, what what the problem is. And this is the thing I will say about Advent of Code, is that I typically don't get very far because a lot of the problems are super heavy on like parsing the input. And I, half the time, can't be bothered to like just parse input like, the problem itself is quite easy. It's just you have to extract some information from, like, strings. Mm. And um, especially, like, you know, years past, I'd never done it in any other language other than C++. C++ is infamously not a good language for, like, parsing strings. Um, I've noticed a lot of, like, coding competitions, like some of the ones that I've seen at various conferences, tend to be very, like, string-oriented. And I, like, I have a theory that the reason for that is that... Um, it's easier to engineer sort of self-contained challenges where your inputs are all just strings. Like there might be interesting algorithmic problems where the inputs aren't strings, but like that requires a little bit more setup. Like if you've got more complex data types, et cetera. Um, Whereas like strings are fairly easy to set up. But like, I agree with you. Like if the problem just like boils down to like uh, either um, parsing some input string or formatting some output string in a certain way, that's just like not super exciting to me. Yeah, and that's the thing is some of them aren't. Like, there was a really cool problem the other day that boiled down to basically, like, you have a list of numbers. If you sort them, uh, you're guaranteed that all the differences will either be one or three. So, like, figure out how many differences of one there are, figure out how many differences of three there are, and then multiply those two numbers. And if you live in algorithm land, you can very, very nicely just go sort, pipe, adjacent difference, pipe, frequencies, Uh, pipe values, pipe multiply, and you're done. Um, And if you don't live in algorithms land, then you're going to have a bunch of for loops and it's going to look super messy. Um, So like problems like that, I I think are awesome. That like, and all you're doing is parsing basically uh, uh, integers. So like, uh, that's that's super fine. Um, But other ones, they give you like a sentence that's like space and comma delimited and you need to like pull the last two words 
in like in three different partitions and it's like it's just irritating um anyway so advent of code uh how did this come up? We, we well, you, like, or like you said been, like, you saw me all of them in APL. In APL. Like, yeah, there's why, why? Uh, that's that. That's the question. Why? <laughs> why? Because uh, yeah, why do I love learning other languages? It starts with Haskell. When I learned Haskell, my mind was blown. Um, in that I had been learning the algorithms and and seeing a little bit of functional programming, and that you can you can pass you know. Uh, uh, function objects or lambdas to uh, algorithms to customize the behavior. So you can take a simple accumulate and change how it works, and that's very powerful. Okay, but you can do that in C++ too. So that's like, what I'm saying. You can do that in C++, but it is, it is, it's limited to what you're given a set of algorithms in the algorithm and numeric headers, and you can write your lambdas. Um, but you're limited to the like extent of like how many algorithms you get. You get like whatever, 100 plus or minus. Um, and you can't do anything um, nice, like really nice. So like if I want if I want to add if I want to create a uh, a unary operator that just adds one to a number, the the spelling of that in C plus plus is uh, bracket bracket paren auto e n paren brace return e plus one semicolon uh, brace uh, paren you're done. Um, that that hurts my soul a little bit. Like I, C plus plus did an amazing job getting lambdas into C plus plus eleven, but it hurts it hurts my soul a little bit. Then I went to uh, Haskell. First, I learned the lambda syntax, which honestly isn't isn't uh, a lot better. Um, but like the equivalent of that in Haskell is uh, paren slash uh, e arrow e plus one and paren. So still not still not super elegant. Um, but it's a lot shorter. And then I learned about something called sections in Haskell, which are basically terse lambdas. So if you take a binary operator, like plus, and you just put parens around it, so three characters, parend, paren plus, and paren, that is a binary operator that adds two things together. If you insert a one on either side of the plus, so if you have paren plus one and paren, that you then change that uh, binary operator that does plus to a unary operation that just adds one. So like in three characters, I defined a binary operation, and in four characters, just by binding a value to either side of the binary operation plus, I've created a unary operation. And like that, that's just syntax. Like you really haven't learned anything. At yeah, that are you point. like being charged by the character or something? Uh, <laughs> you know, it does, it makes me a lot happier. So that's the thing. It makes me happy. Like when I learned about sections, like I, I was just like, oh my God, goodness, like this is amazing. Um, but then like you start to learn about ways that like you can manipulate these things. So they have like, we tech, we technically in boost HANA have a, a template metaprogramming function called flip, um, which they have the equivalent in, in Haskell. So like if you need to, uh, flip a binary operation that's like not associative or commutative so that it applies the arguments in the reverse order, you can just like compose a function in Haskell called flip with that binary operation and you're done. Like in C++, unless if you're like doing something in template metaprogramming land and you have access to boost HANA, there's there's no way to do that. Like the only way to do that is to wrap your function inside a lambda, or there's a couple ways to do it, but the simplest way is to wrap your binary function in a lambda and then like reverse the order that you're passing your arguments 
uh, to that function, which is irritating. Um, but like in other languages, you can just compose a, a, a function called flip with your other function and you're done. Um, and like that's just that's just like the tip of the iceberg. And so like as I started like going down the Haskell path, it just it just the way that they um, you know the way that they had pattern matching like that was the first time I'd really seen like pattern matching in a language was when I learned Haskell. Like I knew it was coming in C and later on I would read you know Michael's paper. Um, but like seeing how Haskell dealt with pattern matching and guard statements is just extremely elegant. So it just changed the way that like I saw that problems could be solved. Um, and then I stumbled across APL, and if like if the difference from C to Haskell was an order of magnitude, the difference from C to APL is like two or three orders of magnitude. Um, like the the solution that I most recently solved for Advent of Code had to do with basically uh, they say picture a grid that represents uh, an airport um, waiting area. So there is a sequence of chairs um, which are represented by the character L. And then there's everything else in between that's a period is just empty space that you can walk around. And it is honestly, it's a spin on the uh, Conway's game, uh, game of Life problem. Um, I won't attempt to explain, or do you want to, well, let's stay on topic. Let's finish the problem and then you can attempt to explain <laughs> Conway's Game of Life if you want. I will. I can attempt to explain it. If you want. Other than that, other, otherwise we'll just link a YouTube video. But anyways, Conway's Game of Life, famous problem. This is sort of a variation of, of it where it says... Um, each iteration of people sitting down, if every adjacent possible seat to them is empty, then your that seat becomes taken. And if there are four or more people sitting adjacent to you, then that person gets up and leaves. So those are the rules of like, if you start off completely empty, the second iteration, every seat will be filled. And then the third iteration, any seat that has four or more people sitting next to it will become empty. And then it just sort of repeats. Um, the way that you solve this in APL is like, is mind blowing. Like, um, modern APL actually has something called a stencil operator, which specifically takes like a N by M, uh, region of your two dimensional thing. It's like a popular trick in like NumPy like libraries. Um, but like the old school way of doing it, uh, it's, it's honestly going to be so hard to explain, but it involves a bunch of rotates, uh, you know, Sean Perrin's favorite algorithm for the win where basically you're creating a three by three uh, uh, matrix of the original matrix. So you have a matrix of matrices where each of the uh, three, so each of the nine matrices that makes up the outer matrix is has a one rotate applied in every direction uh, to the original matrix. So like the top left has like a one rotate uh, to the left, the top right uh, has like a one rotate to the right. And then you can imagine um, like rotates in both directions so that uh, you have the diagonals. Anyway, so you end up with like eight different uh, rotated versions of the initial one. And if you just do like a summation across all of those original uh, or, or rotated matrices, you end up with like a matrix that represents the number of adjacent uh, seats that are actively um, being sat in. And like, I would never, ever in a million years, like, think to solve it that way. Um, and unless if I was, like, learning APL and, like, learning the APL way, way to solve things. Anyways, I will end my digression. Um, does it, but do you, do you, does that knowledge, like, you don't, you don't write APL code in your day job. 
No. Um, well, so I, I will say, uh, what, the one main thing that was so awesome about that story is when I got the code to work, like I, I literally like, I let out like a yelp of excitement um, <laughs> when I got that code working. Like it felt, it was amazing. Uh, I, I, I know that uh, Connor Yelp. I've heard that Connor Yelp before. It was like, because I honestly, I had, didn't know how to do Conway's Game of Life in APL. And I was working, walking through a tutorial and I was like, I honestly don't even know. I was just typing in like one, zero, negative one, rotate. And I'm watching all these numbers pop on my screen. I did not understand it. By the end I did. Um, but your point is, is, you know, okay, that's great. You learn to think differently. Like, but you're not writing an APL day to day. So like, what's the point? The point is that like, it has, like, I thought I had good algorithm knowledge when I learned Haskell. Um, like, I, I, it was pretty good when I was learning C++. Then I went to Haskell, and then I had a bunch of insights. For instance, you know, adjacent difference. It's a terrible name. It, it encodes the uh, default operation of minus into the name of the algorithm. I had that realization um, because in Haskell, there's an algorithm called map adjacent. Um, our map is called transform. So the equivalent sort of translated back to C++ name is transform adjacent. Um, and so then I, had, I thought like, oh, yeah, that, that makes sense. Like... We sh- and, and the Haskell version doesn't come with the default binary operation. Um, you have to specify it. And like when I, when I saw that in Haskell, I realized, yeah, we messed that up in C++. We should have just called our adjacent difference adjacent transform and not encoded a default binary operation because you lose sight of the fact that you can do other things with adjacent difference. One of the things I highlighted in my very first talk is that you can calculate Fibonacci numbers um, with adjacent difference because it's really adjacent transform and if you substitute the minus for plus, you have a Fibonacci generator um, based on if you feed the inputs incorrectly. Um, and so, like, I, I learned things about C++ from Haskell, and the exact same thing um, happened for APL. Like, I've learned a ton about algorithms. Like, really, arguably, APL should be called the algorithm programming language, not... Um, a programming language, but I think yeah, Algol. Is that what it actually stands for? Is a programming language? Yeah, it stands for a programming language, yeah. based on a, a 1962 book that Ken Iverson, the guy that wrote the language, wrote. Um, honestly, they didn't know what to call it. It was originally called Iverson Notation, um, and uh, and then he wrote a book about it called A Programming Language. And then in the 60s, IBM was like, "Hey, we could we could probably implement this," um, and then they started implementing it in like 66 and 67. And then at that time, like, they didn't have a name for it. And, like, they were trying to figure out a good name for this language. And then at some point, uh, someone walked in and was just like, how about we just call it APL after the book? And then everyone sort of shrugged their shoulders and said, okay. Um. <laughs> Anyways, this uh, is supposed to be a debate. Now I've just started talking about APL. I- I'm going to so. ma- maybe modify my answer to you should have at least one person on your squad like Connor so that you have somebody that has all this knowledge that you can uh you can extract for your purposes but uh see for me for me it's just like I mean again maybe it's just a difference in like what we do um I don't spend a lot of day-to-day time like writing algorithms anymore or even like writing code I'm doing more like architectural stuff um and so maybe it's just because we're like we do different things uh, that it's uh, it's more valuable for for you than for me. Um, yeah, it's just like I don't I don't know where I'd find the time, um, and uh, it, it's certainly I I could see it being very interesting and exciting to go and learn a language like APL. Um, I'm just not sure that it would do anything 
useful for me. Plus, also, I've already the, got you who's learned it, so. This is the thing. As I was going to say, you know, you guys can all, or sorry, I apologize. I said guys. Uh, everyone can uh, just watch the future talks that I will give that will just be condensations of everything I learned in language X um, <laughs> and skip the learning part, although it's probably not the same. Um, but yeah, I mean, definitely it's job dependent. I happen to work on uh, a library that is heavily built on top of uh, algorithms, the thrust algorithms. Um, and a lot of the times it's figuring out how do we implement another algorithm in terms of like the existing algorithm. So like having a strong knowledge of, uh, of algorithms is like very important for the work that I do day to day. Like for instance, uh, the other day, I thought this was awesome. Um, a colleague was implementing something called a forward fill. So in, uh, in a data frame, um, I'll use the pandas and our Python API uh, terminology. So you have a series, which is basically just a column or a, a vector, if you will. And we have an algorithm called replace nulls. So you can have, it's basically like a vector of optional data. So you can either have, you know, optionals that have the values or ones that are uh, null opt. And so there's an algorithm that we have called replace uh, nulls that goes through and you just specify a value and anything that's an, uh, a null value, they replace with that value. There's a variant of that algorithm called uh, forward fill which instead of specifying a value, you just take the preceding value, the preceding non-null value, and uh, replace that with the null value. So for instance, if you have one null, uh, three null, five, a forward fill will replace the first null with the preceding one, and the second null with the preceding three. So you end up with one, one, three, three, five. Mm-hmm. So the question is, for the listeners and for Bryce, do you know what algorithm that is? Not off the top of my head, no. <laughs> so we'll give the, we'll give the listeners uh, a couple more seconds. Well, it's it's some, it's some sort of adjacent algorithm, obviously, because it's or or I'm 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 guessing it's some sort of adjacent algorithm because you got to look at, look at the last uh, uh, the last element. So you need some sort of stencil where you're looking at multiple elements at the same time, unless you've got some sort of stateful thing where you're storing what the last element was. Um, but I don't like such things because you know they're harder to paralyze. Uh, in, 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 yeah. So if you were guaranteed, I think that um, you only ever had uh, nulls that were you didn't have like a sequence of nulls one after another, that would definitely work. Um, you could do an adjacent uh, an adjacent transform, aka what we call an adjacent difference. Um, and you, that would work. The problem is, is what happens if your example, if we take our original example and get rid of the middle three and you have one null, 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 five. In that well, case, I mean, if, you're, if you're doing it sequentially, then you're still fine because you, you know, you, you replace the, the first null and then it becomes a number. And then you, by the time you get to the second null, you know, the thing on its left has been, which was a null has been replaced with a, with a one already. Hmm. Yeah, I think actually that would work. I mean, is that is that defined behavior? Uh, reading. Yeah, from yeah, like yeah. Just it, it, to... If you're if it's a sequential algorithm, yes. I mean, if if we're talking parallel, then things get a little bit more complicated. This, in some ways, this reminds me of stream compactation, um, which is 
uh, an algorithm where you want to go and find like runs of, of um, numbers of the same value and compact them to, or you want to go run, find runs of elements of the same value and compact them to a single element. Mm, yes, encoding uh, is what that's classically referred to. Um, so the answer to, for, sorry to keep everybody hanging, but uh, the answer to the um, question or uh, problem is to use uh, something in, that in Thrust is called an inclusive scan, and that in C++ yeah, that, that was that was that was actually my my first intuitive thought was that kind of sounds like a scan, but yeah. um, then my second thought was um, that might be inefficient because um, uh, you don't need the sum of everything, right? Well, so that's the thing um, is classically a scan, uh, the default operation of the scan in C++ is partial sum. So this, so basically, a scan mm-hmm. is a transform that just carries state with it, um, and and classically in C the default operation is std plus, um, which that means that like at every point in time, the state that you are carrying is the uh, rolling sum of all of the elements that you visited so far. Yeah. But you don't actually need to carry like state that is the sum of everything. There is something called a uh, a scan max. Um, or a scan min, which all it does is carries a single value that represents the minimum of the values you've seen so far. And so in this example, when you're scanning, all you're doing is basically scanning with the previous element. um, And then you basically have a ternary operator where you check like, uh, is the current element null? Uh, If it is, just use the previous element that is the state that you're carrying uh, return that. Otherwise, just return the current value. And the way that that works out is that if you end up with uh, consecutive nulls, it will always be returning uh, the last previously non-null value. Um, yeah, this, this also kind of reminds me of uh, of group by algorithms. But yes, I'm not surprised to hear you say scan because that was the first thing that that jumped out at me. Um, but that's but, the thing uh, is, I I initially thought scan, and then I wasn't certain that it actually worked due to the sort of the case with the extra nulls and I couldn't see it but uh that's what's beautiful is that I think this is like I think identifying min scans max scans you know uh, uh plus scans those are all pretty easy when like whenever you need to see those like in my first algorithm intuition talk when you have to d- uh, calculate like the mountain range which is basically identify the maximum and then do a plus scan from both sides it's yeah. pretty easy to see that but like this is a non-classical scan, I would say, like in my opinion, that is, it is definitely a scan. Um, but unless if you like spent, if, unless if you're Mark Harris and like you spend your, your days thinking about like, he, he said like once you have your scan eyes, this is Mark Harris, uh, the pick on my team. Um, he was like, once you have your scan eyes, you see it everywhere. And I thought that yeah. was like a great quote because I don't spend like a ton of my time thinking about like scans. So I wasn't, I wasn't convinced but when I, I presented this in like a lightning talk meeting or, or uh, more accurately, uh, one of my colleagues, Michael Wang, uh, uh, presented it. And then like a couple people immediately when I was like, what's the algorithm? They were like, scan, scan. And because like, they just they have their scan eyes. If you have your scan eyes, you see them everywhere. Um, which yeah, I, just, I think is, is awesome. I'm pretty sure that my adjacent uh, transform approach works if you only care about doing this sequentially. But if you if you care about doing this in parallel, the problem is if you've got like, if I've got like one null, null, five, um, and let's say that I, I, divi- I divide that four element input sequence into two element chunks, each one that's given to a separate thread, 
that second right, chunk right, yeah. is going to be null five. And I, I guess the, the more nefarious case would be what if you had, you know, one, um, no, 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 I, that, 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 that's, that's the sufficiently nefarious case that in that case, the second thread doesn't know, um, uh, doesn't know what to do. Um, but, but I also, I also think, no, I can't really do it with a transformer. Yeah, I guess it's gotta be a scan if you're doing it in parallel. Um, but if you're doing it in um, in serial, um, I think a just like an adjacent transform would work fine. If you just if you know that you're always um, marching serially from left to right. Yeah, I, I and I think we're getting close to the end. But I'll I'll link um, what Bryce just said makes sense to me. Uh, but I'm guessing to a lot of the listeners, sort of the the par- parallel versus serial um, when it comes to like adjacent transform versus scan. Uh, there's like a subtle thing that he's uh, relying on, and uh, we can try to explain it a little, uh, in a couple of sentences here. But there's a, one of your best talks, I think. I think it's called the C++20 Synchronization Library from yeah. CppCon 2019. I believe at the end of that talk, that's where you give like a visualization of inclusive scan with like the upsweep and the downsweep. Yeah. Um, and that that is like, I'm not sure if you recall, but uh, the first time... We went to, uh, and this probably deserves a whole a whole episode to its own. When we, when you drove to San Francisco, and we went to <laughs> the Michael Park hosted, um, we were at Mesosphere, I believe. On, in that car ride on the way to San Francisco, uh, I think I'd, I think previously at like a different time, I had asked like, I don't understand how a scan can be done in parallel. Like a uh, reduction yeah. is pretty straightforward. You can visualize the tree reduction, and you know you just add the numbers that make sense. But like a scan. Uh, inherently when you visualize a scan, it's carrying state. And like anything that carries state, it is not intuitive like how you can make that work in parallel. And then you explained to me in that car ride and uh, my mo- I was enlightened. And then and, later and on- if you re- if you recall, we missed a certain turn that we had to take like three or four times <laughs> yeah. while I was in the deep part of the explanation. <laughs> yeah, but you had the right. aha moment in the car. Yeah, that was that was hilarious. Yeah. We were so we were talking about the the scan, and then yeah, a few minutes later, wait, or did we take the wrong? Ah, and then yes, some uh, colorful words were shared. I was I was less concerned about us getting there on time than I was about you understanding the power of a parallel scan. And I think yeah. too, I I you were trying to like get back on the right highway, and I was still asking questions. And at yes. one point, you were just like, "All right, we got to take a break. We got to pause the scan talk." Yeah. Um, We've got to, and uh, uh, and that out that version of scan that I showed isn't even the most efficient um, scan algorithm because that that was still a two pass algorithm where you did an up sweep and a down sweep whereas the the modern state of the art the scan al- algorithm that we have in thrust is a single pass algorithm but it's much much trickier to explain there's a whole paper written on it that uh, my colleague Dwayne Merrill wrote. Mm. We should link all that stuff. Um, yeah. So yeah, maybe we should leave. We'll leave the explanation of a, a inclusive scan um, in parallel. Maybe for the next episode. Maybe that's what we can talk about. Um, implementing counter and less intuitive algorithms, uh, parallel algorithms. We can we can try and explain that stuff next episode. Mm, spicy. All right. Anything else we wanna wanna highlight before we hop off here? I think that's it. I think it's uh, it's a good one. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next one.